You're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Lahaina and loss, those two words have become intertwined with the wildfire disaster on Maui. This morning, we paused to talk about one of those losses, the Wohing Temple. Wohing means peace and harmony and prosperity. HPR reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us in studio. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so this temple, this Chinese temple, I have pictures of it when I first saw it way back when. Uh, but people uh, probably need reminding about its history. Yeah, so the Chinese community has had this long history on Maui from arriving on merchant ships to working in the sugarcane plantations. And um, these men who arrived helped build tunnels and irrigation systems throughout uh, through the mountains of Maui, mostly in Hana. And from the mid to late 1800s, thousands of Chinese folks came to work in the sugarcane plantations to the sugar mills. And on Front Street, we see that historic building, the, the Wohing Temple Museum, and it encompassed many histories of the Chinese community in Lahaina. Unfortunately, it was burned down on August 8th during the wildfires because it was located on Front Street. And this um, Wohing Temple Museum, it was used as a community hub for the Chinese community. And Chinese immigrants maintained social and political ties with their ancestral home in the 1900s. And the Wohing Society, it's a, a group of uh, the Chinese community, they formed this society in 1906. Uh, there were several of these societies on Maui, but there are two left, including the one in the society in Lahaina, and I believe there's one in Kula as well, according to Busa, but yep, she's a docent of the Temple Museum. And this society was formed to provide social contracts and house retired workers. And the society used to hold all of these community events, including the Chinese Lunar Year event and the uh, mid-autumn uh, moon festival as well. When I spoke with Busipa Yip, who's a docent of the Temple Museum, uh, she's been volunteering there for more than 20 years, and she's also been conducting research about the Chinese community in Lahaina and Maui as a whole. Um, she's heartbroken. She lost her job, and she lost her house to the fires, and she's devastated. I never got to meet her in person, but speaking to her on the phone and I actually uh, got to see a tour on YouTube when I was doing research. She seemed very passionate about what she's doing, and she's just heartbroken of, of the matter. It's really sad when the fire happened on the 8th. I let my tears coming from the deepest of my heart, and I realized how much I love the work I'm doing at the Wohim. When the fire happened, I really like to go back and have a look for the last sight. I was I could I not believe it's all gone. But after a number of people that they told me Wohing already burned in the fire. So I after one week, two weeks, I let the tears come in and clean, cleansing myself and let go on the attachment and let the tears transform into a positive direction with hope for the future that is unfolding. So this is 37 days after the fire. I see lots of hope to our future work. Yeah, that's heartbreaking, but you can see she wants to move on. Yeah, and you can tell the passion in her voice, and as you, you listen, you can hear the cracking in her voice, too, as she was fighting back tears. And Busum has been doing a lot of research on the Chinese community in Hawaii, and thankfully her research has been saved and digitized. Uh, she mentions there's a lot of hope to rebuild the Wohing Temple Museum. And the Wohing Museum, Temple Museum, has been managed for 40 years by the Lahaina Restoration Foundation. Uh, but it's owned by the Wohing Society. They're just in a collaboration. So um, when uh, the Chinese folks moved from Maui to seek more opportunity in Honolulu, this, this building structure was infested with termites. And so that's when the Lahaina Restoration Foundation was working with the Wohing Society to restoring it. Um, and so... Um, there are already talks about rebuilding the structure. Uh, the society formed a committee to do the work, according to Busipa Yip. 
but there's no timeline yet on when the work will be done. It's still in the beginning phase. I talked to uh, Jacqueline from the Wohing Society, and she's going to be meeting with uh, Theo Morrison from the foundation. Um, and I was uh, I was told by Busaba that many of these artifacts within the museum that burned, um, there are some that are salvageable. I'm so happy for all the good, you know, ideas and possibility to bring back all these things in the future. That is our hope for the long term and short term. We can do small things also with our working research will continue with the contribution of our friends who work with Microsoft. So every the 2,000 pieces of record, even the physical being, some burned out in the, during the fight, but a lot of them survived. Yeah, thank goodness that was digitized. Yeah, and the Woking Society right now, um, in the coming weeks, they are working on creating a website, and we'll be asking for funds in the near future. Okay, we'll keep uh, track of that. But thank you so much, Cassie. Thank you. We've been talking with HBR's Cassie Ordonio about Lahaina's Woking Temple Museum. Uh, you can check out her story on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. <laughs> Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha United Way, partnering with local workplaces to engage teams motivated to help impact the community. More about its workplace campaign at auw.org. Aloha, I'm Bert Lum. If you're interested in science, technology, and Hawaii's innovation economy, tune in to Bite Marks Cafe on Hawaii Public Radio HPR1 today at 6.30 p.m. Support for HPR comes from Ulu Ocean Grill and Sushi Lounge, located oceanfront at Four Seasons Resort Hualalai, serving dinner nightly. Chef Nuri PCO features pan-Pacific dishes inspired by on-site and local island growers. Images of burned cars lined up on roadways out of Lahaina suggest those fleeing the fires had few options on August 8th. It appears many people died trying to get out as we try and understand what led to the tragic loss of life and property in the West Maui town. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Silly reporter Marcel Henri on the line today. Good morning, Mar Marcel. Morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me on. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, we're trying to put together the pieces. Yeah, you know, the, a lot of the coverage of the fire has very understandably moved on to the recovery and the rebuilding. Uh, but there still is a lot of strong interest we found, of course, in the, the evacuation and the specific details of how that all occurred on the day of the fire. And meanwhile, we still haven't gotten a lot of details, uh, just a lot of real generalities, frankly, from uh, the, the officials who were on the ground and, and assigned responsible for for handling what evacuation could have been could have been done that day so today's story is really it's it's some you know just investigative piecing together from eyewitness accounts from survivors uh, but really trying to get into a lot of detail as far as what their routes were and what they encountered you know in specific uh, spots on the map uh, that really what we found you know a lot of uh, similarities there's some some differences in people that were in different places at different times uh, but you know one, one of the common themes we heard was people saying that they were essentially directed and routed even funneled you know down into uh, off of some of the, the major streets which were dealing with down power lines uh, you know the highway Honolulu and, and uh, the bypass 
uh, but that they were, you know, directed down onto Front Street and Wainai Street and these these smaller, cramped roads in town. Um, so that's it's it's uh, the, today's story. Just you know, is a lot of uh, harrowing accounts of then what happened in, on on those roads. Yeah, because you know, like I said, we're all still trying to get the official uh, kind of chronology of you know w- what happened, you know what agencies did what, what decisions were made, uh, you know, until we get a you know in order to get a clearer picture of uh, how this terrible thing happened. Right. So far, really, like you know, press conferences and the like. Um, the most we haven't we just haven't gotten a lot of detail whether it's about you know the specific um, uh, decisions that were made um, on the roads or, or anything else but you know when uh, the, the police chief John uh, Pelletier of Maui uh, said well we uh, we were uh, guiding people away from the danger you know that's that's about as much of the specificity as we've gotten um, so far you know civil beat and other media outlets we've been We've been pressing for more specifics. Well, you know, what what did that look like? Uh, what were, uh, you know, where were there, um, uh, I don't know, checkpoints or if any impediments to, to people uh, getting out, you know, and what were the, the justifications for, for any roadblocks or, or lane closures or anything like that? Um, and it's just, we, we haven't gotten anything back. You know, there's there's the attorney general is, is pursuing an, 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 you know, inquiry, not an inquiry, but like an investigation into basically uh, what what happened that day, just to see how it happened. Um, you know, Pelletier has talked about an after action report, but we have no idea when that's coming. And meanwhile, this was just one of the most, you know, um, significant, unusual and just catastrophic situations. So there's still just so much interest in what happened that day. We're just trying to piece it all together. Yeah, because officials, like I said, may not have known, you know, the loss of life uh, in, in that first, you know, day, the first 24 hours. And, and yeah, decisions were made. And so we want to understand, you know, uh, what exactly happened. So it be interesting to see what these investigations turn up. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Henri with today's Reality Check. Uh, you can read that story at civilbeat.org. Julian Uggen is a fellow Chamorro, a native of Guam, what used to be known as the island of Guahan. Uggen comes from a place where he's using his skills as a writer and a lawyer to tackle the issues of environmental justice tangled in a very complicated political history. He wrote the book No Country for Eight-Spot Butterflies. He's a featured speaker at Tomorrow Night's University of Hawaii's Better Tomorrow series at the Manoa campus. I met him for the first time this morning. He vividly remembers the day that sent him on a path as a human rights advocate. Basically, in 2005, the U.S. federal government came out with an announcement that it had sort of unilaterally decided to heavily militarize my homeland, which is Guam, as you know, our our homeland. And there was no meaningful consultation. There's no consultation whatsoever, actually. And so we had constantly, in 2005, 2006, in that one-year window, we just kept hearing announcement after announcement. You know, these announcements that were really sort of thrown to us, flung at us from on high, you know, from the decision-maker, those in power. And I realized this is why I need to go to law school. This precise reason, you know, I was tired of being talked out of the room by lawyers. I was tired of sort of the U.S. federal government and other sort of you could say nefarious actors who were really like, you know, private corporations who were really, you know, benefiting from militarization, like the military buildup of Guam, these these projects. Um, I was like, they had been weaponizing the law, you know, and doing it in such a way for, I'll just give you a really concrete example. The, uh, the U.S. Department of Defense spent years creating this environmental impact assessment, like millions of dollars, tons of uh, contracted experts. And then they gave the community of Guam, my people, 45 days to respond. Then they had, you know, you know, the grace to extend it to a 90-day response uh, comment period. But it's it was 
insane. The scale of the military buildup in Guam then planned was staggering, and it still is. And so I really wanted to go to law school precisely because I wanted to do the opposite thing with law. I wanted to embark on a very different kind of project, which is, you know, using language and the language of the law to clarify my intent, not to cloud it, you know, and to, to sort of deploy it on behalf of vulnerable communities like my own, the indigenous Chamorro people of Guam. Um, and I guess you could say um, my work as a writer is similar, if not the same in some ways. It's still in fundamentally about interrogating language, its use, what types of actors are using language in what type of ways, you know? So the way our community on the ground, our activists are using language is very, very different from the way, for example, various U.S. federal agencies that are trying to effectuate, effectively give waivers to the U.S. military to imperil a whole, a whole host of life, both on land and at sea. So that project, I've been involved in that project for a lot longer, you know, and that is just, my my work as a writer, but to answer your first question about Guam, Guam is just an incredibly beautiful place, as you know. It's roughly 30 miles long. It's the ancestral homeland of the Ch indigenous Chamorro people. We've been there for well over 3,000 years. Um, we have a matrilineal society. We have a very elaborate system of cultural values, the center of which I would argue is the ethos of reciprocity. We actually have more words for reciprocity than any other word in our language, which gives some indication about the kinds of values you know we have as, as a people. And so we've thrived in this particular place for thousands of years, and that place is in danger. It's in danger right now, today, as I speak. Just so you know, five minutes before heading over here, I was sent a press release. You know, there's an announcement that the U.S. military is going to perform its very first, its inaugural set of live fire training activities next week. So over a firing range that it built in an area that's quite sacred to my people, to our people, that is host to several endemic endangered species and they destroyed roughly a thousand acres of pristine limestone forest to do it and this military uh, firing range is going to now cut off access because the u.s military created an additional buffer zone that it, it is calling a surface danger zone and it's going to deny fishermen for so many days out of the year to be able to access a critical fishing area too so it is just sort of a panoply of injustices that are sort of being, you know, trained on my people, whether, you know, it's indigenous medicine women like the Zoomtis who gather certain plants that are growing around that firing range or fishermen who are trying to make a living and feed their families. So this is, and as a human rights lawyer in particular, I just find that the current military buildup, the firing range in particular, is basically a violation of a whole wide range of our fundamental human rights. It's been a year since you published a book about a native species. Share with our listeners about sure. that particular butterfly. Sure. Actually, that butterfly is one of the many endemic endangered species whose critical habitat is now being endangered by that exact same firing range. So the butterfly in question is the Mariana eight-spot butterfly. She's native to Guam. She is an emphalid butterfly, so she's orange and black, essentially in color. I mean, she's incredibly resilient. You know, I like to say that so many people who are so much more familiar with the monarch butterfly were such big fans, aside from the beauty, just of the resilience. I think the monarch butterfly has to go through five larval instars to really sort of step into her power and become a full-fledged butterfly. But our Mariana Acepaw butterfly, in fact, goes through six larval instars. So I think she's like a testament, you know, to the importance of respecting strength as opposed to power. And that's why, to me, she's such an emblematic figure for our movement in Guam. I mean, we have survived, like her, or my people, Chamorro people have survived hundreds of years of uninterrupted colonization the harms of which are still ongoing and really concretely being felt today. And now that sort of enduring colonial enterprise is being exacerbated by a very hyper-aggressive round of militarization. And so, you know, when you wrote this book and you were a, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize Award, what did that mean to you? 
from a very personal perspective, you know, the book was um, most meaningful because I saw that it really brought so many people together. Like when I went on the national book tour last year, this time last year, in fact, I had going to New York, San Francisco, Seattle, here too. But no matter where I went, I saw large groups of particularly young Chamorro people um, young Chamorro members of the diaspora, so-called, because they don't live at home, right? They feel a certain loss and a certain mahaling, like a deep longing to be with each other. And I saw, like, for example, several WhatsApp groups created. I watched firsthand all these, like, young Chamorros who even worked as close as one New York City block from each other and didn't even know each other. They didn't know of each other's existence. So I saw this bring people together in just an, in really beautiful ways. And I saw it build community. And that's what I think the most we could ever ask from a book is to build community. You know, that is, it's, you know, deeply loving, you know, and that is like all we can really do, especially in the times we're living in now. These are, you know, very trying times. And so people, we need each other. And this book helped do that. Another thing I'll say is I thought it was really interesting. Maybe perhaps arguably the most special aspect of it is the book is primarily about grief. In the book, I'm processing a whole host of loss, including, you know, the loss of my father from pancreatic cancer when I was nine years old. So the book really uses grief, but it tries to do it in a much more indigenous way where it's not grief that has an isolating effect, you know, which is a very individualistic kind of like walling off, you know, of oneself from others and people from each other. Instead, this is like, you know, Angela Davis, she once said, walls turn sideways are bridges. Grief is like that. So like I try to turn grief on its side and allow people to like, it almost functions like a bridge. And like through our grief, we can find each other again. You know, it means a lot to me. And, and so the fact that you have been able to build community through this book, through the young Chamorros that are transplanted, mm-hmm. you know, across the, the, the continent. You just learned of this development, you know, and I know there had been some challenges to this buildup. Yeah, definitely. There's been a number of challenges, legal and otherwise. I mean, we even had allies here like Earth Justice file lawsuits on our behalf. I have filed lawsuits, you know, on behalf of the people with my firm. We were successful in some. For example, we successfully sued Fish and Wildlife to protect uh, critical habitat for a number of species. But of course, it's not enough, you know, and the U.S. federal courts suffer from this very particular kind of element, if you will. They allow, you know, U.S. federal courts tend to allow certain prudential doctrines, like the political question doctrine, which functions to essentially remove the possibility of judicial review from cases that the judicial branch feel are more, that feel that the Constitution textually commits to the coordinate political branches. So that's a problem, right? So essentially, as long as the U.S.'s military is the actor and it claims national security and it claims to need a firing range, you know, environmental laws be damned is essentially the point. So instead of just like sort of bringing a simple case, you know, under the Endangered Species Act or under the National Environmental Policy Act, all of these federal environmental laws that were passed to protect the exact species that are in danger now, you know, you see, you know, fish and wildlife or NOAA coming out and sort of effectively giving waivers, you know, sort of excusing um, the U.S. military's performance or compliance with these obligations, you know, and it's just the state of affairs that we're in. In in some ways, it's a very accurate state or accurate reflection of the fact that the U.S. military is still uh, proceeding in ways that are really ecologically destructive, and they're getting the legal license to do so. Do you feel like they are treating our native species as second-class species? <laughs> no. I mean, Guam is a territory. It's not a state. And you would like to think that those laws apply evenly. At the heart of all of this is a glaring denial of the fundamental right of self-determination for the people of Guam. We are still recognized by the United Nations as a non-self-governing territory, which is a fancy way of saying colony. So we are formally slated for some future act of decolonization at which we will be able to choose one of three internationally recognized political status options, which includes a right to outright independence. So yes, we have all of these rights under international law, but the U.S. is sort of flagrantly violating those rights. You know, and it is 
sad. I mean, and that's just from an international perspective. Under U.S. law, Guam remains an unincorporated territory, as you say. What that means is, you know, it means many things. But actually, it, what it really means, um, if you want to be simple about it, it just gives U.S. Con- Congress sort of carte blanche, um, pl- so-called plenary power, to do whatever it want, wishes with the territories, including act in ways that are disparate, unfair, unequal, inequitable, unjust. And all of that sort of has constitutional blessing because the enduring legacy of the insular cases, which is, right, the turn of the century um, sort of legal fiction that was devised by the U.S. Supreme Court to basically allow the U.S. to exercise this sort of unfettered power over the overseas colonial possessions it took over from Spain at the conclusion of the Spanish-American War without, in turn, conferring rights upon the citizens, the native inhabitants of those territories. So, of course, over history, we have incremental, we've gained certain rights incrementally and certain constitutional provisions apply incrementally. But it's always subject to complete defeasance by Congress. What Congress gives, it can take away. And it is still considered by many in the military to be an outpost. Oh, yes. I mean, people, yeah, definitely. Military uses language like that to almost disappear all the people living there. Author and lawyer Julian Uggen. The title of his talk is Gathering Flowers by the Road. It's a nod to a new book he is writing based on an essay about climate justice that propelled him to a global stage as a, a Pulitzer finalist. Uh, the event is sold out, uh, but overflow crowds at the uh, Art Auditorium are still welcome. The talk will be available later online. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at mobi.com. Hawaii Public Radio's corporate relations team is growing, and we're looking for an experienced media sales professional who is community-minded and loves HBR to join our team as a corporate relations associate. If you excel at new business development, enriching existing relationships, and ensuring client satisfaction, we want to hear from you. Read more about the position at hawaiipublicradio.org jobs. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. Now on view is Transformation, Modern Japanese Art, a look at a time when dramatic changes in society were reflected in the arts. HonoluluMuseum.org. Artificial Intelligence, AI. It's the technology behind the facial recognition that unlocks your phone and personalizes what you see on social media. As it becomes more prevalent in the workforce, many Hawaii businesses have started to ask, how can AI be helpful or harmful? Uh, Ian Kitajima is the president of the Pacific International Center for High Technology Research. He's more than uh, 30 years' experience in the innovation and development of advanced technologies. He sat down with HPR's Russell Subiono. It's already in your pocket if you're carrying a phone, mm-hmm. right? It's, uh, if you have any of those Alexa devices, I have tons of them in my home when I'm talking to Alexa. It's, it's actually all around us. Maybe you don't see it, but it's already there. Mm-hmm. But I think what has happened more recently in the last few months is because of these they call it large language models like ChatGPT, all of a sudden the everyday person came in like direct contact to it. And it's literally like magic. It's like having like a little genie on your shoulder, Mm -hmm. or it's like having the smartest person in the room as your friend. A friend of mine just said, phone a friend, right? So if you had a topic or you wanted to like have it write, like I'm going to do a presentation. Can you write me an outline about a particular subject? Or I'm planning a party. A birthday party for you know a three-year-old. What are some recommendations, right? All of a sudden, it seems very human-like, and I think that's what's exciting and also what's also scaring people. So I think many of the things that we may think today are science fiction are going to probably be a reality maybe sooner than we expect. 
You know, I was just telling somebody, remember the Dick Tracy watch idea? Right. That came from like, I think that was like in the 60s or something. Right. Right. Where you could talk into your to watch. watch? Right? Well, yeah. guess what? 50 years later, right. we can talk into our watches. Right. Right. We can do all of these crazy things. So you can imagine in 50 years, what is going to be possible? How important do you think it is that people educate themselves on AI? Oh, I, I, it's, I think it's super important. You know, I think the reality of what's going to happen is you're going to have, you're going to be competing with people who are already using artificial intelligence as part of their work. So it's going to be those who are using it versus those who are not. And if I'm using it, I may be five times maybe more productive than you are. So you don't have to use it, but you're going to be competing against people and organizations and companies that are. And I want to say that I'm super excited about AI because I remember being around when the internet first kind of came to public consciousness back in 1995. I remember looking at a screen that one of my software guys were, were looking at and I asked him, what are you looking at? And he goes, well, this is like a, um, a browser. And it's like a browser. What is a browser? And what are you looking at? He goes, well, this is called the World Wide Web, the internet. And I go, well, what is the internet? What is the World Wide Web? And what is the thing you're looking at? And he said, oh, this is a website called Yahoo. And the same questions we were asking ourselves back then, which is, what is the internet and what do you do with it, is the same questions we're asking about artificial intelligence. And I think it's another huge, huge opportunity for us in Hawaii and for our young people to be the creators of the future. This is a superpower. This is like a super skill that if we can become educated and be the masters of it versus be afraid of it, I think there is so much opportunity for us in Hawaii. And so when we look at different areas in our life where it can be applied, I know you're giving a talk about using AI in business. Let's talk a little bit about how AI can impact business. What's one of the big ways oh. that AI can have a positive influence? Yeah, so, so at this Hawaii Society of Business Professionals gathering we're going to be doing on September 21st, there, I mean, so one of the simplest things I think you can use AI for is to summarize. So I use some tools where it transcribes my entire meeting. Say you had a 10 people on a Zoom call or a Google Meet call, 10 people for one hour, and you have to summarize that meeting. It's impossible. It's so much work. But I can use this system that transcribes all of it into text. And then I can hit one button and it summarizes the entire meeting so succinctly. I could never, ever make a better summary than what the AI will do. And that by itself saves a tremendous amount of time. And a lot of times, you know, like you may have to read like a long article, right? Say, oh, I got this 10 page article, but I got like five of them to read. Well, guess what? I can have ChatGPT or one of these other systems summarize like a 50-page document, and it'll do it in like 60 seconds. If you're a business, and as we know for businesses, time is money, money. Yep. right? If AI can help you save time on a lot of menial tasks, that's worth it, right, for that's, a business. Yeah, totally worth it. I mean, you're right. I mean, it's. I think some people are saying, you know, AI is kind of like a time machine. It can save you a tremendous amount of time to do many things, and- you know, if you're writing, like, you have to write proposals, for example. I think what's going to happen, and it's going to happen very quickly, especially for companies where, you know, your data is with, like, for example, Microsoft. Lots of our corporate information are with big companies like Microsoft or Google. These companies are introducing Microsoft as a product. They're going to be introducing called Copilot. And what you're really doing is it's using ChatGPT as this base language model. That's again, it's like having the smartest person in the room with you. But then now it has access to your corporate data and it's trying to do it again very securely, having access to your corporate data. And all of a sudden, maybe I have a, a response for proposal on RSP. And now I can say, please help me fill out this proposal request using my corporate information. And so ChatGPT is like the best proposal writer in the world. It looks at all my corporate information and all my past proposals and now helps to actually write that particular proposal. And maybe it'll only get like 80%, but you know what? It'll do it in a few minutes. And what would have taken me maybe days or weeks to put together, it just put it together for me in five minutes. Yeah. 
can you see the advantage now? If I have that capability and you don't, right? You're going to spend the next week or two weeks working on their proposal and I'm going to be done with it in one day. Yeah, you'll definitely have the advantage. advantage. Plus you'll Huge have the advantage. extra time, right? And have all the extra time yeah. to do more important things. Well, yeah. not, not more, but you know, other, other things. Other things, yeah. yeah. As we know, with any new technology, there's always an advantage, but there's also pitfalls that we have to watch out sure. for. Well, you know, depending, again, I think part of it is, under, you know, like how we talked about education, right? It's trying to understand what these different tools are. If you're looking up facts and things, using chat GPT, like things that are generative, you know, they can get very creative. Right. <laughs> so they can make things sound incredibly factual, but it's actually false. So if you're looking for certain kinds of information and you want it to be factual, using generative AI may not be the best idea because it will create responses that sound very plausible but could be very incorrect. Mm -hmm. So part of it is understanding these tools and understanding when should you use them. Of course, there's just, whenever you're talking about something so new like this, it's of course very easy to focus on all of the scary things. That's just natural, especially when you're dealing with something so new. But I think the things that are scary are all gonna get fixed. But that's also the opportunity for entrepreneurs here in Hawaii. So for all the things you think are gonna be scary and is gonna be an issue, know that those are also opportunities to create the next generation of companies here in Hawaii. And so that's what I'm really excited about is for young people to get exposed to this technologies and be able to kind of create the next companies for for Hawaii. So what can a business do to be more prepared for competition that may be using it or to integrate it into their own business? Yeah, I, I think this is the this is the challenge because we have a certain way of doing business, right? And so we're already overwhelmed with what we have to do right now. I would say, again, I use it in very simple ways. Like I'm trying to just brainstorm an idea Right, I can ChatGPT. They have versions now on Android and your iPhone, and you just ask it the questions like, "Hey, help me brainstorm some new product names or some new service ideas, or give me some examples of some new business models that are being applied from one industry to another industry to the industry I'm a part of." Right, so like use it like you have the smartest person in the room at your beck and call, and as you think of stuff and you're going, "Ah, oh, I'm really stuck on this," just pull out. ChatGPT, think about it. I mean, it's all those little things that eat up your day, right? But those little things over time, like in a single day, it's like, I just spent all this time. What did I get done? It just saves yeah. so much time. Yeah, it saves you all uh, from all those little tasks. <clears throat> right. You're giving a talk about how AI will impact businesses, you know, the good and the bad and, and some other information. Can you talk about that event? Sure. So uh, the event is for the Hawaii Society of Business Professionals. It's September 21st at the Hawaii Prince Hotel. Yeah. So it, it'll be a talk about artificial intelligence. I'll, I'll actually be showing and actually, I won't try and demonstrate it, but I have recordings of actual things I've been doing with artificial intelligence to show people that it is almost magical. I mean, you know, it's kind of like magic to see some of these tools. So we'll show actual applications. I'll show basically show people all these different things you can do with it. And then we'll do like a Q&A and yeah, we'll talk about all of the concerns we have. And, and we should be, these things are incredibly powerful. And so we have to be very careful of how we use these tools, yeah. right? Like any tool can be for positive or it can be used for negative stuff. It'll be exciting. Ian Kitajima, thanks so much for coming into the station and to talk story with me today. Really appreciate you, man. Thank you. Thanks, Russell. Appreciate it. That was technology expert Ian Kitajima talking with HPR's Russell Subiano about the use of artificial intelligence in business. Uh, Kitajima is being featured at a Hawaii Society of Business Professionals luncheon on Thursday, September 21st at the Prince Waikiki. We'll have a link to register on the conversation page of our website later today. Support for HPR comes from Pacific American Lumber on Oahu, offering wood flooring from UA Floors. Its Hawaiian collection of engineered wood features mango and monkey pod from Hawaii Island. PACAMLumber.com.
This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Not every bird has a great name, but you'll hear no complaints from the melodious laughing thrush. Here's your Mono Minute with University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart. Melodious laughing thrush, or Chinese huame, are one of those birds that are much more often heard than seen. They're a pretty good size for a songbird, about nine inches long, which is the same size as a cardinal. They're mostly rusty brown with a long yellow bill and a very distinct white eye ring and white streak behind their eyes that makes them look like they're wearing glasses. Huame are very hard to spot because of their habit of loving to hang out fairly close to the ground in dense shrubs. But they make up for this shyness around humans by belting out one of the most beautiful songs of any non-native bird in Hawaii. This song, which can be described as a long series of paired notes and melodic whistles with some mimicry of other bird songs mixed in, can be heard from over a hundred meters away and is generally sung by males to attract the opposite sex. Even if you've never seen this bird, there's a good chance you've heard it. Melodious laughing thrush are native to southern China and southern Asia and were first brought here as cage birds by cane workers from China in the late 1800s. Legend has it that they first escaped into Honolulu when they were released from their cages during a great fire in 1900, though they may have been established even earlier than that. They've since been introduced and are common on the islands of Hawaii, Maui, and Kauai and are much less common on Oahu. Huame can be found from the coastline up to over 6,000 feet elevation and eat a variety of insects and fruits, mostly from non-native plants. Because they can spread fruits from invasive plants like Myconia and Clydemia into our native forests, and despite their beautiful song, they were placed on the State of Hawaii Injurious Wildlife List in 2014. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, offering guided nature adventures on Hawaii Island, designed to help inspire connection and stewardship of the land. More information at hawaii-forest.com. Sharing Limu stories is part of a groundswell around elevating a critical ecosystem. The University of Hawaii uh, Oral History Center just launched a collection of interviews tapping seaweed cultural expertise across the state on its scholar space online. We talked to uh, Malia Hemuli, Limu Hui coordinator with Kuaaina Uluawamo, a community-based natural resource management group. She is part of an event that the University of Hawaii Oral History Center is holding tonight at Kapi'olani Community College, featuring cultural experts in the world of limu, or seaweed, that former Center Director Debiana McGregor is solidly behind. The oral histories with limu experts like Wally Ito build on the work of seaweed scientist Isabella Abbott. Here's Hele uh, Hemuli talking about this latest effort. These kupuna who are a part of the limu hui you know, they're holders of a lot of Ike knowledge, memories of limu, and the way that they gathered it in their area, they grow it, gardened it, and also prepare it. So that was an opportunity for the kupuna to share all of their memories and their stories. So we were able to work with Center of Oral History and collect those stories from a few of our folks. And they have launched it onto their scholar space platform, which is with the University of Hawaii at Manoa. And that's available now. And that's available now, yes. And so, gosh, I think we, you know, had the we had the opportunity to talk to Uncle Wally Ito, and he is keeper of a lot of that knowledge there in the Waimanalo area with all his work. And the last time we chatted with him, he was going to do a survey of Limu out at Koho'olawe. 
Yeah. And you were able to go on that one? I was, yes. So a few Limuhui folks were able to go to protect Koho'olawe Ohana to Hakioaba side. And we had done a few surveys in a few areas like Hakioaba, Hakioaba Iki, Oava Vahie, even Kuheia. And what we were doing was just serving for Limu, seeing like presence and absence, what Limu is present at that time. Since it was May, it was kind of the start of summer, so we were trying to see if there was any dieback of Limu that was happening, what was present there at the time, and try to implement some survey methods as well. Yeah, so you had a, at least a, a baseline yes. from previous surveys. And so what was the upshot? I mean, were there any particular areas that you had more of an abundance of certain types of limu? Yeah, there was. We did have a few spots that weren't heavily silted. So areas where a lot of runoff was not coming down from the aina up top. And we were seeing a lot of abundance of limu in those areas. As far as other places that did have a lot more sedimentation on the papa or the reef flat, still has diversity, but not as much abundance of the limu. And the history of Koholabe, because that was used by the military as target practice, and there are a lot of unexplored ordnance and a need for restoration because a lot of the area is just eroded and that red dirt goes into the ocean and that's what smothers the, the reef. Yes, yes. And so what, I guess, are the bright spots? Like what types of limu seem to be doing pretty good? A lot of like pepeao, limu pepeao. But what type is that for the folks who oh, don't know the, the Hawaiian name? That is the padaina species. It's a brown limu, the ones that look like ears. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I see that all the time when I swim. Yeah. <laughs> there were a few spots that had um, a lot of red limu, like haula, which is, um, I'm forgetting the scientific name right now, but haula was a was one that was present a lot. And Is that good eating? You know, limu always, always depends on taste and texture. So I don't personally, that's one on my, lower on my list okay. of favorites. But <laughs> Yeah, haula. Then as far as the areas where maybe the limu was not doing so good because of the runoff and the the sediment, will there be more efforts directed toward, let's say, reforestation where you can minimize the erosion? Yeah, I can't say what the plans are for reforestation or restoration, especially up Mauka. I think what we can do right now is just keep monitoring and seeing what it is that is coming back in different times of the year and what is maybe not present at those times as well. Always data collection is really the key to understanding what are the effects of, say, sedimentation and erosion, and also just being able to develop methods that could really help our marine ecosystems, especially those on Kaholabe. And then when you were there, so did you just come in by boat and stay offshore? Or you know, how did that all work? Yeah, so we launched from Ma'alaya and also Kihei boat ramps. And we did get into Akiwaba Bay. And, you know, you offload right in the ocean. And you halihali, you pass all your equipment, your ukana. And then you stay at the campsite. And there's Haveo, the base camp area. And then there's just like sites that you just pitch up your tent or your hammock and you can sleep under the stars. Oh, that must be really beautiful yeah. out there, you know, because it's, you know, very remote. But yeah, that's kind of a powerful place. Oh, yes. You know, it is tricky, though, right? When the trip had been canceled because of the rough weather that we had, I think it was it December? Yeah, December. It's right after Uncle Emmett's passing. So we were canceled because of really high wind weather and so many of us think it was a whole ilona of you know just letting the island rest and Kaha'olawe always accepts you when it's ready f- to accept you as well that's at least my belief so we were very fortunate to go back in this past summer in May and we hope to continue to do limu surveys in different seasons so hopefully in the fall time or the winter time would be a great time to look at limu, especially since during the summertime, limu does die back. And so to see what's present in the winter time, when swells are up, when tides are up, you know, a lot more wave action happening 
it would be really cool to see that. Yeah, but I imagine, though, because of the timing with uh, the passing of Dr. Emmett Naluli and his part, you know, in reclaiming Kaholawe and the restoration. So that must have been kind of emotional for lots of folks. He was probably in their in their minds at the time. Oh, yes, definitely. And we shared stories about him and, you know, just uh, memories of his, like, early days, especially from Auntie Davy, and, you know, being able to share, like, all the, the impacts that he's had in our lives and the impacts that he's had for PKO and Kaho'olawe, that was really beautiful to share with each other when we were on island. Yeah, because the work that he did, the health of the island, the health of the people, mm-hmm. you know, and the legacy that he's left behind. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, very powerful. Well, so then, you know, it's great that then we have these stories that are preserved online for people to share. You know, we just came off the year of the Limu, and hopefully that'll raise the visibility. I know that there are so many groups across the state that hold the Limu festivals. Those are just marvelous gatherings. Yes, definitely. We also, I don't know if you know, but a lot of people don't know, but this past July, Governor Green did sign the bill into action, Limu Kala becoming our state Limu. So now we have a state limo. Everyone has knows the state bird, the state fish, but now we have state limo. I think as Uncle Wally used to say, if you if you take care of the limo, you take care of the fish, you take care of the reef. It's all it's goes back to that very basic thought. I think we're all waiting for the University of Hawaii to rename the uh, Life Sciences Building in honor of Auntie Izzy, Native Hawaiian, who really did a lot to elevate limo in the academic world. I think the thing I wanted to share is that anybody can really share their stories about Limu. And, you know, we have this scholar space and we have, you know, interviews from Kupuna who are pretty, who we consider Limu Loea or experts. But anybody can share, you know, a story that talks about when they gathered Limu with their Kupuna or when they ate Limu here and there. But that's always data collection as well. And we love to hear stories about what they were seeing back then so that we can kind of see how we can possibly bring that back to our marine ecosystems and to our consciousness as well. That was Malia Himuli, Limu Hui coordinator, talking to us about an event happening tonight from 5 to 7 at Kapilani Community College. Check out our website for links to find out more. Well, we're out of time, but up tomorrow, we plan to hear from Governor Josh Green. He's just back from a United Nations summit. Got a question? Leave it on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find our archive shows online by searching for The Conversation podcast on Spotify and Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.